It's not only Reformation, as you probably know, especially if you have kids, it's, it's also Halloween. If you don't have your costume picked out, have you considered dressing up as the Pharisee from the Gospel this morning? I mean, think about it. What, what a, a spiritual superhero that guy was. He never missed a, a day in the temple, always was there for the, the regular prayers. He tithed. He was very pious, very sanctified, and, and knew clearly that he was, he was far superior to the man next to him as well as many others. He looks like the guy that, that would be described in, in what we're focusing on in, in our series, Living a God-Lived Life. So you might consider following in, in his footsteps, dressing up as him uh, for, for Halloween. Now, I, I'm kidding, of course, and I'm sure that as you read or as you heard read that parable from Jesus in the gospel, that not one of you thought to yourself, boy, I sure wish I were a little bit more like the Pharisee. You know better. Because through that parable, Jesus makes it clear that the teaching point is not to be more like him, but much more like the other individual. Though on the outside, it looked like he was living a God-lived life, but that's just it. It only looked that way. It's one thing to look that way and another to, to actually live that life that we are called to. Which is to say that we are less interested in going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions. That, that we aren't just doing the things because these are what Christians are, are supposed to do, but because that heart of faith prompts us, drives us, compels us to seek out God's will and delight in carrying it out. Doing those things for the right reasons to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction in honoring God that way and, and thanking him for his free gift of salvation. So the, the Pharisee looked the part, but it was only a, a God-looked life, not a God-lived life. You may have, have noticed that that theme for the next four weeks has a double meaning. It's something that we are called to, but a God-lived life is first and foremost something that Jesus carried out on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, lived the life that now frees us to pursue that same life. Not bound by guilt, not by God's strong arm to coerce us or force us, but free to do so because Jesus has already carried it out on our behalf. So what does a God-lived life look like? Well, we start this morning focusing on specifically one attribute of being a disciple that lives a God-lived life, a disciple who craves the Word. Peter started out describing what that's all about in verse 22 in, in the, the first lesson that we had. He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Notice how he rightly sets the tone. He doesn't just jump right into, this is how you're supposed to live, but he reminds you who you are, who we are by virtue of our faith. He uses that phrase, obeying the truth, which is another way that the Bible describes as simply faith in Christ Jesus as my Savior. To obey the truth is to cling to the promise that God has given me that all is achieved and accomplished for you in Christ Jesus. And so obeying that truth brings about a change in our lives that Peter hit on. He says that's what prompts you 
because you have been redeemed to love each other and to love each other deeply. This is a word that isn't just some surface or passing affection or emotion that you feel towards something. This is a deep commitment that he is calling us to have for each other and for others. And it's only reflected because Jesus lived that God life, God lived life for us. Why is it that we would love each other? What is it that, that prompts that? Peter goes on in the next verse. He says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. He describes that word of God as living and enduring. You were accustomed for the last month, month and a half even, in seeing all around your neighborhoods, in the front yards, all kinds of decorations that are associated with death and mortality. And notice the stark contrast. Peter says the word of God is living and active. A a living, something that is living, gives life. It makes alive. And that is exactly what the word of God does for you and for me. It it gives us purpose. It brought us to, to life. And gives us significance. Not only is that word of God living, but he also says it's enduring. Those decorations that are on people's front lawns, they're going to come down very soon. They're going to be tucked away in storage. And eventually they're going to even be replaced by other decorations. They'll come and they'll go. They'll pass. Eventually they'll fade away. Not so with the word of God. Never. It endures. It always will be. And especially on this Reformation Sunday, that gives us a a little bit of understanding when we consider what is probably the most well-known phrase that that Luther uttered when he was forced to recant his belief in the gospel and take back his teachings and his writings and, and that famous statement, here I stand. Here I stand. Where? On the Word of God, the living, enduring Word of God. Because no pope or ecclesiastical council was ever going to endure the way the Word of God endures. Listen to what else Luther wrote about that word of God in Luther's large catechism regarding the third commandment. He said, let me tell you this, even though you know it perfectly and are already master in all things, you are still in the dominion of the devil every day. He ceases neither day nor night to steal unawares upon you, to kindle unbelief in your heart and wicked thoughts against the foregoing and all the commandments. Therefore, you must always have God's word in your heart, upon your lips, and in your ears. But where the heart is idle and the word does not sound, Satan breaks in and has done the damage before we are aware. On the other hand, the word is so powerful whenever it is seriously contemplated, heard, and used that it is bound never to be without fruit." Let that sink in. Do we, do we realize how powerful the Word of God is? The Word of God that, that not only brought all things into existence by God's creation as He spoke the Word, but the very Word of God which brought you and me into existence as the church, all believers. Luther also said about that so that we understand properly the relationship the church believers have with the Word. He said, it is not God's Word just because the church speaks it. Rather, the church comes into being because God's word is spoken. The church does not constitute the word, but it is constituted by the word. 
That is power. And, and of course, you know that. The power that brings you to faith, that makes you the church, that sets you apart for eternal life. There is no other power in this world like it. You know it, but applying it is a different thing. Now, now think about the, the other sources of power that you know. If, if you have the, the newest model of your favorite phone, who in his right mind is, is going to have that but insist on using the decade-old model that barely can hold a charge anymore, that, that hardly has the power to perform, perform even the simplest functions or tasks for you? It would be foolishness to have the one and disregard it in favor of the other. But brothers and sisters, what is it that God sees when he looks into our hearts and, and our attitudes and our thoughts and our relationship about the word of God are exposed? Sadly, he doesn't even need to look or peer into our hearts, does he? He can simply observe our behavior, how we treat or rather how we neglect that word of God that is a reflection of how powerful or not we really think that word of God is. Because if it is as powerful as it claims to be, and as we have witnessed, then, then why would not every Bible class be filled? Why would not everybody be in the word day in and day out? How could we ever thirst? How, how could people do anything but other than saying, Pastor, why do we only worship once a week? How come we don't have a Bible study every day? Do you have more devotional resources for me to, to dig into the word? And yet that's not the case. Do we really know the power of the Word of God when our ears are so often closed to it and we neglect it in favor of so many other things in this life? And here's the real power of the Word of God is that we go to it because that very Word of God assures us that it, it's not your time in the Word, it's not your church attendance, it's not your giving, that makes you right with God. It's that Jesus lived perfectly for you. Jesus carried out a God-lived life. Jesus, even as a 12-year-old boy, craved to hear the word of God, desired to hear it in the temple, to, to be around those teachers of the law, to ponder and discuss and apply the word of God. Jesus resorted to the word of God in the wilderness as he was tempted by the devil quoting scripture, realizing this is powerful stuff that even Jesus himself, who didn't need to, but chose to use the word of God. Jesus then lived out, carried out the word of God to go to the cross to assure us that ironically we are forgiven for our very neglect of that word of God. That his blood has washed over all of our indifference, all of our lack of care or concern for taking this precious treasure to heart each and every day in our lives. And, and that God-lived life that Jesus carried out for us, it, it changes us, makes us alive, as, as Peter said. And it's with that encouragement, realizing that it's not just our, our failure to live a, a God-lived life that disqualifies us from a relationship with God, but, but much more certain the, the assurance that Jesus carried out perfectly for us that then drives us back to that word. And, and on that basis, Peter encourages us. He says there's a way that you should live and a way that you shouldn't live. First, how you should not live, he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. See, since you live as God's children, that's, 
That's not what characterizes us anymore. But in place of that kind of life, Peter goes on to say instead, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Crave that living and enduring powerful word of God. Peter uses the picture of an infant craving that. And maybe you saw, if you didn't, be sure to, to go back and click on it in the email that I sent. The, it's kind of a cute little video of a baby tasting ice cream for the first time. And not only does that baby get his mouth on the, on the ice cream cone, but grabs it with two fists and tries to shovel the whole thing in his mouth. Picture that as far as Peter's encouragement to crave the word of God that way that we can't get enough, that I want to shovel it in, that I, I, I can never be satisfied. This tastes so good. Crave the word of God that way. But I want you to, to think of another picture that is also relatable. Think of, of somebody who has an addiction. Somebody that is addicted to, to drugs, uh, alcohol, pornography, whatever it might be. And that person over time comes to associate a, a certain uh, euphoria, a, a rush, a high with whatever that substance or experience is. And of course, as their body gets used to it and, and gets it's tempered, it, it needs a little bit more each time to, to raise that, that high and that experience. And they crave that substance. But I want you to go back to how that all starts with an addict. Did that addict just wake up one morning never having sampled or tried or, or experienced anything and say, you know what, today's the day. Today's the day I'm hooked on drugs. Today's the day that I'm not going to be able to stop drinking anymore. No, what has to happen first? They try it. They sample it. They experience it. It, it brings about in their minds a good experience, which then feeds another good experience and another and another and another. So, while I'm not encouraging anybody to go that route, what I want you to understand is that if you don't crave the Word of God, there's a reason. For many of us, it's because we haven't tasted it. We haven't consistently committed to being in the Word enough to, to allow the Holy Spirit to create that desire and that yearning in our hearts to crave more of the Word of God. Some of us here have never even read through the whole Bible. Why not? Some of us are not interested in Bible study at all. Why not? Some of us have heard devotional life and, and, and regular personal study, but have never engaged in it. Why not? You don't crave those things because you haven't experienced it. The addict knows that. Do we, as, as redeemed children of God, do we know that for us to crave that word, we first have to commit to being in the word so that the Holy Spirit can fill us up with that desire and that yearning that can never be satisfied enough? Luther has more encouragement to hold out hope for us as, as we seek to make that word a part of our lives. Maybe you're somebody who, who, who doesn't think that you're up to par, that, that reading the Bible is for those who are, are spiritually mature. More like the, the Pharisee. Well, actually, Luther says that you are the perfect candidate to be in the Word. He says, The Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear toward the Word of God and constantly says, Teach me, teach me, 
teach me. But the Holy Spirit resists the power, resists the, the proud, rather. So if you think that, that you are insecure, maybe that insecurity is merely humility. And if you think that you don't know enough to get into the Word, then you are, as Luther was describing, the perfect candidate to start reading the Word of God. Because you have the humility that says, I actually have something to learn. I don't know it all. I'm not where so-and-so and this leader is and that leader and that mature Christian is. Perfect. Then you are ripe for the Holy Spirit to work in you through that Word of God. Remember, go back to the parable. It wasn't the Pharisee that Jesus held up as the example, which would be the one that, that we often feel inferior to. He must have known his scriptures so well. Uh, I'm just not like him, therefore I, I can't be in the, the Word. That's just not me. No. It was the humble tax collector that Jesus used as the example. One who in humility realized how much he needed what Jesus had to offer. So, dear friends, let us crave that Word of God with that humility, not the pride of the Pharisee, and cling to the promises of fruit that will come through that Word. Luther writes in his preface to the large catechism, Besides, it is an exceedingly effectual help against the devil, the world, and the flesh, and all evil thoughts to be occupied with the Word of God and to speak of it and meditate upon it, so that the first psalm, read through Psalm 1 this week as you have opportunity, that first psalm declares those blessed who meditate upon the law of God day and night. That is what we are looking for, by God's grace, committing to craving that word of God. Committing to giving him the opportunity to guide and equip you for a God-lived life which is a disciple who craves that word of God. And as you dig into it, you will come to appreciate what Luther and what the Reformers did. The more you read it, the more you crave that word of God. Because there alone do we find life. Amen.